You're listening to Aesthetically Speaking. On this podcast, we're talking about all things branding, logos, colors, fonts, and the strategy behind it all. It seems like these days it's easier than ever to build an audience, but harder than ever to stand out online. My name's Rebecca, and I'm a brand strategist and designer. I'm here with my sister, Abby, a lawyer who needs a creative outlet. Together, we're going to talk about how to bring your brand to life. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Hi, everyone. This is Rebecca. And this is Abby. Hope you came hungry this week. Or in Rebecca's case, thirsty. She's <laughs> sipping out of a big cup. I, I had to go to Sonic and get my Dr. Pepper in honor of today's episode, which is... F is for food. We're talking about all things food and design. The first thing that I wanted to talk about is the fact that when people think about like food branding or food design... At least in my mind, I was like, okay, well, there's like restaurants and then there's like, you know, like packaging. And then there's like so many other facets of the aesthetics of food. I'm like, I'm actually very excited to dive into it because I think we don't realize how much aesthetics matter when it comes to buying, selling, and consuming food products. So we're going to talk about all of that. Where do you want to start? I was starting, this is my personal anecdote. When we were preparing for this episode, I, I was thinking about how interesting it is that there is an entire channel on cable TV dedicated to food. Mm-hmm. And I'm just picturing the fact that someone was like, hey, I want to do a cooking show on TV. And they were like, you're going to cook for people who are not in the room. They can't smell the food. They yeah. can't taste the food. Why would they watch you cook? That's the yeah. dumbest thing I've ever heard. But it's a huge, huge success. And it's mm-hmm. a moneymaker. And and I love to watch it even when I'm starving. Yes. Yes. Food is so much more than the actual. I mean, we know this because if food was just about fueling our bodies, we would all just walk around with IVs all the time. Although I do. I did know some people in law school. I will not name them or shame them. But I did know people that lived off of like coffee and soylent. Well, I think they were like, I need like- to stay awake. And I need nutrients and everything else is just superfluous, which is not how I live my life, but I respect it. Well, I was going to say, I feel like there's seasons of my life where I live like that, right? Yes. Yeah. But, but anyone will tell you like, oh, that was not a great season of my life. Like I was in, we call it like I was in survival mode. Like all I was drinking was coffee and protein bars or whatever it is, because it's like, we know that food is about more than just putting calories into our body. Yes. And so it's like, I don't know, to me, that's like a metaphor for design, that it's not just about consuming information, but it's about the experience of understanding something. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I wanted to ask you, what's the best restaurant that you've been to lately? And what was, and if it's different, what was the best restaurant experience you've had lately? So like best food, best experience, or were they the same? Um, I think they were, I think they were different. Okay. So I went to, I was in Southern California last week and we mm-hmm. went to a place called Bone Kettle. Okay. What kind their, of food is that? Specialty, it's like broth. So they mm. do, their their thing is bone broth and then you pick your protein and they like mix it all together. And it was. Oh, Cobb would love that. Cobb would love it. I thought of him. They also had like bone marrow as an appetizer, which I was not brave enough to try. Oh, yeah. They had like an Asian fusion carbonara that was really good. Mm. Anyways, but I, as you cannot tell because my voice always sounds like this, but I was getting over a little bit of a cold and uh-huh. just the warm 
the broth and the brisket and the noodles, it was just so comforting to me. Oh my gosh. And it wasn't, it wasn't like a super jazzed up complicated meal. Obviously when you're doing something that's like a broth, it's been cooking for a long time. Yeah. And so there were layers to the flavor, but for something that was essentially to me, the fancy equivalent of chicken noodle soup, it just (laughs) hit the exact right note. I had a really bad cold, literally like five years ago. And we went to our favorite sushi place in Provo and I got this like spicy jalapeno roll. And I was just so congested and the roll just like, I remember just my nose running and running and running and just being like so grateful that I could breathe out of my nose. I have been there. Yeah. You're like, I'll never take it for granted again. As far as experience goes, I'm trying to think of someplace that isn't just dessert. Do you go to a lot of dessert places? I never, ever pay for fancy dessert. I mean, by myself, not really. But the my coworkers are into like tours. So we did like oh, a top yeah. tour. We did a donut tour. So I like, I am very well versed in the donuts uh, that yeah. I'm having right now. As far as like the experience of a restaurant, I'm trying to think. There are a bunch that are really fun. Yeah, because in Vegas, I feel like every restaurant is an experience. Oh yeah, you gotta you gotta dive hard into the theme in Vegas. Yeah, the one I'm thinking of most recently is uh-huh. it's called Milos, and it's in the Venetian. Mm. It's it if you know Vegas, it's in the Palazzo. So there's like okay. two buildings in the Venetian. In order to get there, you have to walk through approximately five casinos. <laughs> yep, go up and down random staircases. Anyways, but once you find it, Milos is like. It's all Greek food, Mediterranean seafood, and they just have a wall of like beautiful heirloom tomatoes. Oh my gosh. And then it's blue and white tile and they do they do like a fixed price lunch menu. So you get three courses for $35, which is an absolute steal. Yeah, that is an amazing deal. I would love this this restaurant. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And so I when I went there most recently, their dessert, they do they have a bunch of fancy desserts. Mm-hmm. But something that I read in a food magazine a long time ago that really influenced me. Okay. <laughs> but it said if you're at if you're at a certain caliber of place, uh-huh. Not just like while you're on a road trip and you stop in the middle of nowhere and there's a diner. But if you're at a if you're at a good restaurant and mm-hmm. you see something on the menu that like piques your interest, that you're like, this doesn't fit. Uh-huh. That's the thing you should order. Mm. Because fancy restaurants don't keep things on the menu that don't generate money. Oh, interesting. So if you are at like a fancy Greek place and then uh-huh. they have like a weird all-American breakfast or pancake option uh-huh. or, or like something that seems really out of place, that's the thing you should get. Interesting. And I would expand this also to like ice cream flavors. If you're at a, a good ice cream shop and they have a weird flavor that's like balsamic vinegar uh-huh. or like olive basil like definitely try it because they they won't keep a flavor around that doesn't generate money yes anyway so they had all these fancy desserts right they had like baklava they had pastries and then they had one that was just like greek yogurt uh-huh and it sounded so boring and i was like you know trust the magazine so i ordered <laughs> it and it was honestly better than like any ice cream i've ever had it was so thick Ooh. you could like hold it upside down and it wouldn't fall out which i oh love i love the full fat greek yogurt Anyways, oh same it was amazing do you know that honey vanilla Greek gods Greek yogurt? I just I purchased that today while I was on the phone with you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that that is like ice cream. It is so good. That is my favorite. That's my favorite 
yogurt by far. I can't stand, we get this like protein yogurt from Sam's Club that's zero sugar and all this stuff. Anyway, it's like good and it's filling, but there is just nothing like that whole fat, just like creamy yogurt. So good. I was going to say really quick. Oh, yeah. I, I would love to hear your restaurant food and experience picks. Yes. Okay. Well, this is so interesting because so one thing that I've noticed, as you know, Cobb, my husband, is a huge foodie, loves to cook, loves to watch like cooking channels. K. Benji Lopez Alt. J. Kenji Alt Lopez. J. Ken- yes. J. Kenji Lopez Alt. Jeez, I can never remember. Yeah. J. Kenji Lopez Alt. I have his book literally on our nightstand. Cobb watches a ton of his stuff. And for Cobb, his restaurant experience is very much about like the flavor and the delivery of the food. Texture. Delivery, do you mean plating? No, like literally, like does it come hot? Does it come fresh? Mm. Even like, is it cut in a particular way? That's important to him because that affects how you eat it, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and so like we'll go to a restaurant and have different experiences because I care a lot more about the vibe of the restaurant and he is much more about the food of the restaurant. But I feel like we have learned to appreciate each other's approach mm-hmm. because eating, like I was saying, eating is not just about putting calories in your body. It's about the experience of enjoying a meal together. And so there's this restaurant in Dallas. I was literally thinking about it today. I was like, when Abby comes for our podcast retreat, I am going to take her to Whiskey Cake. It's like one of my favorite restaurants. I think their food is really good. I don't think it's like the best food in DFW, but they do like little, what are those? What are those little birds that they serve? (laughs) Cornish game hens. Cornish game hens. Yes. They serve those. They do like really fancy chicken and waffles. They do a lot of like, kind of Southern comfort type dishes, but they all have kind of novelty twist type things on them. You know, so they'll do like chicken and waffles with like grated jalapeno on top of your maple syrup. Yeah. And it's, it's so good. And the vibe of the restaurant is so fun. It's like this modern rustic kind of like gangster cowboy vibe. Okay. And all the servers wear like all black swanky outfits and there's bedazzled cowboy boots. It's just, it's a really, I think it's a really fun restaurant. I love and that. their um, signature dish is actually whiskey cake, which is like this three layer whiskey flavored chocolate cake with like a caramelized um, sauce on the top. And it is so good. I bet it's really good. It's really good. So the reason I bring it up is because I love that restaurant. I think the food is good, but Cobb's issue with it is that he says it's overpriced. Which mm-hmm. to him just means that like the food isn't as good as the prices that they're charging for it. But yes. in my mind, the prices reflect the atmosphere and the experience that you get at the restaurant, not just the food that you're getting. Right. And like interesting. And like we've talked about it a lot, but I'm like, that's branding for you. Like they can charge right. those prices because they're not just giving you the food, they're giving you the experience. And like I, I yes. don't think there's okay. anything wrong with that. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I have I have two thoughts. One is, so there's another place in the Venetian called Black Tap and they do, I wish there was a better term for this because it's kind of pejorative, but like they do Instagram milkshakes. Like yes. they're huge. The cups are decorated. There's a slice of cake on top and they are good milkshakes. Yeah. But they are also, they are a certain level of aesthetics and excess that is very Vegas, but is also to drive. You've seen pictures of these. Right. So 
it's yeah like i don't know that i've ever like heard of this restaurant but when you said like instagram milkshakes i was like oh i've for sure seen those right you know what that is and to me that's appealing i like something that's kind of a novelty that yes over the top in that way but other people are very turned off by that they're like i just want a basic plain milkshake yes like Cobb's like i want my milkshake to come in the stainless steel container Yes. Like that, that's what I, I want it to be mixed and then handed right to me. Like no fluff. Right. You know, or I don't want it so big. I don't want it so big that I can't afford. Right. Afford it or that I can't finish all of it. Right. Oh yeah. Cobb is always like, why am I paying $11 for this ice cream? I'm like, shh. Mm-hmm. And then my other, my other anecdote, which will lead me to an actual substantive question. But uh-huh. We had my in-laws in town last week and I made reservations at this like fancy Italian bourbon. Mm-hmm. And the food was excellent. They were really good with my kid who was like throwing stuff on the floor and one year old eating lemons. I no joke. I'm like, it is the equivalent of taking a raccoon to a restaurant. Like, yeah, it is that crazy. Anyway, that continue. Crazy. And it was a nice place and they were so kind about it. And so for Aww. that, I will love them forever. Good. But what I did not think about because we've lived in Vegas for so long Every restaurant at a certain hour, and I couldn't tell you if it's like 8.30 p.m. or if it's 10 p.m., but when the clock strikes, mm-hmm. every restaurant is like, now is the time to lower the disco balls and bring <sighs> out the club music. <laughs> oh, no. So the good news is my like, child mm, loved mm, it. Mm, oh, yeah, yeah, she was literally fist pumping for like an hour and just like looking at the lights, <laughs> shimmying. So she She was having her own experience. She was having her own sensory experience, but my in-laws were like, it's so loud in here. It's so loud. Like, I thought we were going to like a family restaurant. And I was like, <laughs> you're like, this is are. the family restaurant. This is as family as it gets. It was just so funny. Like every restaurant in Vegas also moonlights as a club. Dallas is the same way. And yeah. coming from Utah, where there's laws about serving alcohol in the visual of underage customers, like that is not allowed. Yep. And so I think like when mom and dad come and visit and they're like, oh, wow, like we're like, we're sitting right next to the bar. I'm like, every restaurant is a bar. That's just like kind of how it is. You don't get a table, you eat at the bar. You eat at the bar. Yes. I remember the first time Cobb and I were like, I guess we're eating at the bar. Here we go. We've never done this before. And then you're like, actually, this is just like normal eating. Nothing special about it. You just have to sit next to each other. So your necks are kicked by the end of the night. (laughs) So based on to wrap all of this together, yes. I was just going to ask if you are a food establishment, mm-hmm. how do you determine who your target audience is? Okay. Like food, everybody eats food, right? Mm-hmm. But not everybody wants the same experience while they're eating food. So which comes first, like the product or the vibe, although we've, we've outlawed vibe. Yeah. Minus 10 demerits for saying that. Yeah. So I think it depends on who's starting the restaurant. And this is me. Okay. Like, I don't, I've never branded a food establishment. I have one in Dallas that I would really love to work with. But in my mind, it's kind of like, is this restaurant being started by the chef or is this restaurant being started by a restauranteur? Right. So there are people okay. who like that is their, that's their career basically is opening new restaurants. And so I think if it's the chef for, understanding sake. Let's just say that the chef is like, I am an expert with beef. That is like my pride and joy. That's what I'm good at. Then I think you say, okay, then our strategy is going to be beef and we're either going to go for steak or we're going to go for burgers. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think successful restaurants really, really hone in on one thing. Like if you look at, let's say like Chick-fil-A, 
they're like chicken. Chicken is our thing. Fried chicken, fried chicken sandwiches. But like they don't veer from that. And that works Mm. really well from them. I think you have a very hard time being the everything restaurant. Yeah. kind of turns you into, I'm trying to think of a good example. Like Chili's. 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 (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Or Cheesecake Factory. Yeah. Or Cheesecake Factory. Perfect example. And like Like people. Their thing is supposedly cheesecake, but you wouldn't know it because their menu is 500 pages before you even get to the cheesecake. Right. And, And what do you think as a consumer when you sit down and they have a menu with literally hundreds of items? Like you start to think, yeah, this can't possibly all be like specialty chef made stuff. And I mean, that's just, that's what a restaurant is. Typically when you have a chain restaurant, it's not really like chef. It's not a chef cooking food anymore. It's more like a procedure that they're following. Right. So I think that's, that's how I would go about it. Like if the chef is starting a restaurant, I would say like, Hey, what's your thing? There's a great restaurant in Dallas. This would be like my best food experience. Although I also really liked the atmosphere. It's called Son of a Butcher. And mm-hmm. they are like Wagyu beef sliders. Ooh. But they're so you get like three and you can choose any three that you want. And so they have like classic, obviously. They have a jalapeno popper one, which is excellent. They have um, like a seared tuna with beef. Um, and then they have a PB&J. Anyway, there's a bunch of different ones, but those are the ones that we ordered. And they were all so good. And they were like, this is all we have. This is all we sell. Yeah, like, this is our thing. Yeah, like if you don't want burgers, don't eat here, right? Yeah. Um, now, if you're like the restauranteur, I don't know if that's a real word, but let's just say that it is. If you're the restauranteur, I think you almost look at it more by um, like pricing and say like, okay, what kind okay. of restaurant are we trying to create? Because a lot of times you're saying like, okay, we are we are building this restaurant in, you know, downtown Vegas. There's tons of really bougie restaurants. Do they yep. need like a fast casual option? Kind of like what's yep. missing there and say like, okay, they really, what people don't have is the option where they can get a good meal for like $12 a plate, you know? And I think you kind of approach it that way and you ask like, okay, what do we want to charge? And then what food do we offer for that price? I don't know if that's how they go about it, but that's what I would think of. And just as like a side note in pricing, because the way that I approach pricing is as a positioning tool for your brand. Right. And so I think you say like, what kind of people do we want to attract to this restaurant? Look at the price. Mm -hmm. You know, that would be my, my approach. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm wondering if your advice changes if you are not. Oh, my advice always changes. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I just mean like for a restaurant, niching down makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Like you want, if you want brand recognition, you have to tell them what it is you're serving. Right. Ultimately, you can't just say like, Although there are plenty of restaurants that are like, this is the most interesting. The backdrops were amazing. It's a maze. Mm-hmm. But like, nobody's like, you know what the best food I've ever had is Rainforest Cafe. Right. Right. I could tell you one item that they sell and it's like a volcano lava cake for your birthday. <laughs> I literally remember ordering a quesadilla there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You go like, there you go for the experience. Right. But for most, like, if you're really a foodie, you probably want to start with food. If you're a, my question is, if you are a food publication, 
Like mm-hmm. if you are a cookbook writer, yes. maybe you're a chef, but maybe you're also just a lay person. Mm-hmm. Or if you are like a magazine or a blog, mm-hmm. how do you, you can't just really only blog about beef. After a while, right. you're going to run out of content. But right. how do you still make sure that you have some you have something to offer that's unique? Yeah. So with that, I think you look hard at the person. So if you're the chef, you start with the food. If you are the business owner, you start with the price. If you are the blogger or the personal brand, I think you look at the people that you're selling to. So let's say you're like, this is all about moms who want to feed their kids healthy, quick dinners. That becomes mm-hmm. your umbrella, right? Okay. So you're not so worried about, is it beef? Is it chicken? Is it vegetarian? And maybe your common denominator is time or cost, right? Like we're going to go for the fastest and the cheapest meals. Or maybe it's slightly different where you're like, we're helping the mom whose child just got a health diagnosis and she wants to put a little bit more money into their meals. And so your common denominator is all of these meals are organic. Right. Or allergen-free you know, or allergen-free to be allergen-free. Right. Right. Like um, one of my friends is working on that like autoimmune protocol diet that's super, super mm-hmm. strict. And she was like, I am desperate for resources. Yeah. Any blogs, any recipes you can send me, I would be so grateful for because she's like, I just feel totally lost. Like I don't even know where to begin with that stuff. So like yeah. the cookbooks that I have done have kind of followed that same approach. Like I designed this beautiful cookbook for Thrive Family Wellness and hers is all about using like the freshest ingredients and minimal like processing. Even when you are cooking things, I noticed that most of her recipes were like raw ingredients or like steamed or boiled. There wasn't anything that was fried. There was very few things that were baked. Like it was all as close to the natural source the natural version of the food as possible. That sounds great to me because from the month of June to September, I basically try not to use my oven at all. Oh my gosh, right? Well, and Thrive Family Wellness is all about family health. And so right. all of her recipes are also like kid-friendly. And she has this great introduction in her cookbook that was like, how do I change my family's eating habits? And it's like a two-week plan of slowly mm-hmm. introducing foods, changing the way that you talk about foods so that your whole family feels empowered to eat better. And you're not just like, here's our new dish of black beans and rice. Like everybody enjoy, you know? Yeah. Which I, I thought was really so cool. Sh- like it was more than just, here's a recipe. It was like, here's how you actually implement change in your family's diet. Right. Well, it sounds like you branded her program, but also mm-hmm. she's branding food to the yeah. family too. Yeah, exactly. What was the other cookbook you said you worked on? Um, I've done a few different ones. I I remember Mama Manja. Yes. Hers was all online, um, which was a little mm-hmm. bit easier to format. Cookbook design is one of the most time-intensive projects that I do as a designer. Interesting. Not harder, but takes more time than building a website, takes more time than building a brand. Like it is very time intensive because you have to get all of these different elements just right. And like, you know, you have cookbooks, I'm sure, that have great recipes, but the way that it's designed makes it not user friendly. Yes. And so you never cook them because you're like, I can't see how much it makes. I can't see how long it takes. I can't see at a glance 
what things I need to mix when. And so, or like the secret step is in the instructions at the very end. Right. Or it's like, for this recipe, you're going to want to make this caramel sauce, which is on a different page. And you're like, put it on the same page. <laughs> like, And these, like, we just don't think of these things. And I think right, not to throw shade on whoever is designing like these cheap Costco cookbooks, but I think it's somebody who doesn't really cook and who doesn't really work with the creator of the recipes. Because mm. like, I'm looking at the food lab recipe book by J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. And his recipes are so thorough and so well-designed where the layout has the ingredients at the top, the time, the yield, and then it has the instructions and the instructions also have the ingredients. Like, So whether you're making it for the first time or the 50th time, it's really, really easy to use. I will say though, he needs a digital version of that book because it is massive. It is heft. That's on brand for him though, because of he just has like a very methodical scientific exactly. Yeah. His his whole thing is like, this is so thorough. You will not have any questions about how this recipe works when you're finished. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You won't have any time left to cook, but you will know how to cook it. Yes, exactly. One of Cobb's favorite YouTube cooking channels, I think it's Adam Ragusia, but he does a lot of kind of like America's test kitchen style cooking Mm -hmm. where he'll make like sourdough bread and he'll make four loaves. And in one loaf, he does less yeast. In one loaf, he does more water, like tries to control the variables as much as he can. And then basically tells you like what you should do to have the best outcome. Anyway, I have a little bit of beef with him right now because one of his videos convinced Cobb that he could smoke brisket in the oven. We don't have a smoker, mind you. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) I was going to text you about this. He convinced Cobb in one of his videos that you could use liquid smoke to uh-huh. smoke a brisket in your oven and that it would be like exactly the same. And the taste was fine. The problem was this was our Sunday dinner last week and it wasn't cooked until 1030 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> we eventually like oh. made the kids like quesadillas or something. And we're like, hey, go to bed. And then I was like, I was like, I'm just going to go lay down. Wake me up whenever it's finished. I can't wake me up when the brisket is done. (laughs) 10 years later, Sleeping Beauty awakens and the brisket is done. Seriously, he finally came over and was like, "Um, it's done. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you serious? Is it midnight? And he's like, no, it's only 1030. (laughs) (laughs) And I got in. No, I wouldn't say it was a fight. I would say it was like a power struggle. Uh Uh-huh. But we, we were having people over to celebrate when I got sworn into the bar. Okay. And my, my like best comfort food is I love pulled pork. I love a Carolina Mm -hmm. style vinegar pulled pork. Yes. Sides, no sides, bread, no bread. I just like the pork is so good. I do love pulled pork. Again, on a very similar note, (laughs) we have our pandemic purchase was a 700 pound pizza oven. It is massive. You guys. It is huge. It's large enough to fit a Thanksgiving turkey inside. (laughs) And we mostly, I mean, we've used it for all kinds of things, but we mostly use it to make Neapolitan style pizza, which we can talk about uh, in a later episode. P is for pizza. P is for pizza. Anyways, so again, Ty, through some YouTube research, was convinced that we could use our pizza oven as a smoker. Mm-hmm. And we would just have to mm-hmm. control some variables and get the coals right and the hickory. And In case you didn't anyways, know, Abby and I are married to the same We're exact married to the same person. person. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad enough. I now just like, if you have a one syllable name, I probably have called you Ty or I have called Ty by your name. Oh my gosh. 
And Ty and Cobb are both just like off the beaten path enough that they're interchangeable yes. to meet the words, not the people. Yes. Although Anyways, also so the Ty, people. Also the people. <laughs> Anyways, we're having people over at four. Ty does all this research, but doesn't get stuff in the smoker until like four hours before. And then it turns out that it takes like 48 hours to cook it low and slow. Yep. Anyways, so we smoked it for a while and then we finished it in the oven and Ty chopped it up and it, it like worked perfectly fine. But there was a time like 90 minutes before our guests were supposed to come where I was like, I just like hope we can eat tonight. Oh my <laughs> yeah, gosh. Something to put on the table. <laughs> Seriously, I have been there so many times we have people over and Cobb is like, it just needs like another 30 minutes. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. We'll just keep swimming, keep hanging out. And finally at 7.30, I'm like, yo, we got to eat this like now. Yep. Oh my gosh. Okay. Where should we go next? Well, I was just wondering, I think next we should talk about the way that food looks. Yes. Like when you are, when you are like visually presenting the food, either at a restaurant or I'm thinking of a blog that show has to show the finished product. Mm-hmm. How do you style food when food is the product? Yes. Well, and to back up a tiny bit, this is probably stating the obvious, but as you may know or may have heard, we eat with our eyes, which just means that we don't want to put anything in our mouth that doesn't look good to our eyes. So the aesthetics of our food really does matter. And I think it matters, especially when you're in the restaurant and they bring it out to you, you want it to look good, which is why, like, I don't know if you've heard this, but steakhouses typically dim the lights because your steak mm. can look kind of purpley, like it's supposed to look that way but you don't want it to look purpley. You want it to look more red. And so they dim the lights or they'll use like warmers to make everything look the right way. But I think it's especially important when you're doing things like food blogs or cookbooks to make sure that you're like styling things correctly. I would say the number one thing is like lighting. Like you want to have really clear, crisp lighting, but you want to skew it a little bit more towards the warm because you want your food to look fresh. Unless you're mm. serving like truly just an all green salad, I would always just move the temperature a tiny bit more warm because otherwise it looks kind of blue and dead. That's interesting. You mentioned color. I mm -hmm. was talking to a friend recently and they had read, this is like triple hearsay. So Okay. I love it. Don't quote me on this, but they were talking about how the color blue has been unappetizing historically for so long because it's associated with like death something mm -hmm. that's cold it's not yep. fresh it's wilted but that's starting to change as we become more comfortable with artificial colors mm. so now you used to never be able to have like a blue gatorade right that was unthinkable like no one would want to eat this it's so unnatural right they have this almost aversion to it but we are getting more and more comfortable with artificial flavors yeah so now when you see blue you think oh that's like mountain cool flavor or whatever mm -hmm. it is right this takes me back to my sixth grade science fair project, which I'm so glad I'm having the chance to discuss as an adult. Your, because fine, I, your finest work in this <laughs> I thought it was such a good project. I served everybody in my class glasses or cups of white grape juice, but I dyed mm -hmm. them all different colors. And then I asked everybody, what color drink did you have and what flavor drink do you think you had? And there was correlation. Those who had a red drink thought that their drink was flavored like a red fruit. And those who had yep. 
a purple drink thought that it was flavored like a purple fruit. Like that sounds obvious, but that's actually a pretty big deal to be able to say like, yeah, we perceive flavor based on what it looks like. Right. And apparently the science fair judges didn't think it was that revolutionary because I didn't go to district, but I thought it was really good. (laughs) Apparently IRB was like, yeah, we've seen this before. Move along. (laughs) They're like, congratulations. We just wanted to know which popcorn brand will have the least number of unpopped kernels. Oh, that's always there. That's always the science (laughs) fair. So I think like when you want to make food look super appealing, you want to get the colors right. And then there's also the texture. And the texture of food is Mm -hmm. super, super important because we want our food to look like what we expect. So you want a salad to look crisp. You don't want it to look slimy and you don't want it to look dry, right? That's why a lot of times when they do styling for salads, they'll do like the bed of lettuce and then the toppings and then the dressing drizzled on top. Because mm-hmm. if it's if you actually like toss the salad, it makes the lettuce look just slightly slimy, yeah. and that's just too unappetizing. So you want to keep everything right. looking. We want to really eat fresh. it that way, but we don't want to see it that way. Right. There's also like a whole world that we won't get into of the ethics of food advertising because there's like oh, where they're putting like Elmer's glue instead of mozzarella, so the stretch looks really good. Right. So if I recall correctly, I actually studied advertising in college. If I recall correctly, you can alter the substances for the food, but it must be, it has to be a majority food product. Does that make sense? So like you can put, you know, like cement in the Oreo to make the cream look Mm -hmm. thicker as long as it's mostly cream. Interesting. That seems like a slippery slope if I've ever heard one. Oh, it's such a slippery slope. And like, I remember being on set doing spec work for Oreos and doing literally like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of breaking the Oreos. I guess I should say like, I'm pulling my hands apart like this because we wanted to get that shot just right of like the twist that you do when you want to separate the cookie from the cream. And seriously, we probably went through 10 packages of Oreos just like, nope, not it. Nope, not it. Nope, that broke. <laughs> Rebecca's there with her knuckles bleeding as she's twisting Oreo. I'm just like, here we go again. Here we go again. You know? So that's like a super interesting world. Yeah, that's really interesting. The other... When you... Because oh, you're a designer, mm-hmm. when you look at a plate of food, do you notice things like how many colors are on the plate? Is there movement? Is it making my eye move in a clockwise direction? Mm-hmm. So there's two kind of main styles of food photography. And as soon as Mm -hmm. I say these, you're going to be like, oh yeah, I've seen these. So one is top down, right? And the visual Uh, they're trying to create. Bird's eye view. Bird's eye view. Yep. They're trying to create the image of you looking down at your plate at the table, right? And it's, Mm -hmm. you want it to be like pretty balanced. You don't want a ton of other stuff in there other than like the food, the plate, maybe the utensils. Okay. Okay. And then they have what's called like the over the shoulder So this is, you'll sometimes see it like where it's on the table and the food is in focus. And then a lot of times they'll have the ingredients that are in the food in the background. Okay. So this is really interesting because let's say that you have like a smoothie, right? A plain glass with a yellow creamy texture is not that appetizing. But if you put a pineapple behind it, all of a sudden it gives us this tropical feeling right? Because we know what's in it. We understand where it's coming from. Like it creates that connection. So you'll see a Mm -hmm. lot of that. I love, I love cookbook type photography where you're seeing like cooking items. 
like really cute dishes stacked in the background or like I loved all of Natalie from Thrive Family Wellness. All of her photos, she had great dish towels just to add a yeah. texture, right? So it wasn't just everything on a plain white surface. I think there's like a place for that. But where you're yeah. going for a home cooking cookbook, she wanted it to look like this is your kitchen. This is your dining room table. Like this is how you're actually going to be serving food to your kids, right? And um, yeah, one thing that I loved that Soleil from Mama Manja did was she did a lot of photos of her and her mom. What's her, the right way of yeah, saying that? That's correct. Sure. She did a lot of photos of her and her mom. Actually, it's the take- object of the preposition, so it's <laughs> her and her mom, or her mom okay. and her. Okay, she did a lot of pictures of her mom and her actually making the food, so actually running the pasta through the pasta machine, whatever yeah. that's called. I personally believe that you want to be pretty careful with hands in your food photos because you want to avoid perception of uncleanliness or other people touching your food in a way that makes it unappetizing. So like So does that mean if you have a, like dirty fingernails? No. Absolutely not. But if you have veiny, witchy hands, is that also a no? I mean, if you're going for like Streganona ancient Italian food, (laughs) I would say like, go for it. Go wild. No, I would generally say, I would say if you want to put hands in your pictures, they should be clean. You should have absolutely no jewelry and no fingernail polish. Mm -hmm. Like you want this to be as clean as possible. And there's also a difference between like rolling bread dough with your hands versus taking pictures, even of somebody like tossing a salad with their hands. It just distracts a little bit from the actual food item. Interesting. So I think you just want to be careful with that. My other question was where, where do you think video content is helpful for food and where do you think it is harmful or distracting? Yeah, this is not so much an educated opinion, but just what I have observed because I don't have experience doing food videography. I have done a lot of food and styling photography. I think when you have people like J. Kenji Lopez Alt, yes. how many times am I going to mention him? I literally it's did not because... plan on mentioning him, but he he represents kind of this sector of online food experts, right? Yes. And he is not a sponsor of the podcast. We hope he'll be a fan one day. (laughs) I like, I really love his approach. To be honest, his videography drives me crazy because. So for those who, those who haven't seen it before, he attaches a GoPro to his forehead Mm -hmm. and then he cooks in his tiny little kitchen. Yes. And he has a very normal average size kitchen. He has some He probably has many expensive cooking products, but they're nothing flashy. Like he buys the ones that are truly like your workhorse chef's knife as opposed to maybe the trendy influencer chef's knife. Yeah. It's not glamorous, even though he does have nice things. Like I'm sure he has a carbon steel wok. It's a wok that he's using every day. So it looks used. Right. And there's a certain appeal in that. I personally wish that I could just brand J. Kenji Lopez-Alt a tiny bit and say like, hey, let's just dial up the aesthetics in your videos a tiny bit more because Mm. I think that I think he could maintain that like realness, but have it just be a little bit more visually pleasing. And like his food, the food itself is, is always pretty visually pleasing, 
but the cooking to me is like, oh, this is kind of bugging me to watch it. Yeah. So that's like one side of the spectrum. And then on the other side, you have like the BuzzFeed tasty videos, which are like those quick snappy, like they put in the baking soda, they put in the chocolate chips, they mix it up. It's all from that bird's eye view. And then you watch it in the time lapse in the oven. It's like, who knew that you could make anything you wanted in 30 seconds? Right. And so that moved fast enough. Right. And so that's like too far on the other side where they've simplified it too much and they're taking out the mess and the beauty of the process and just really dumbing it down. And so I kind of like to think that there's a sweet spot in the middle where you can be really thorough, but still actually have it look good too. Yeah. And my thoughts about that, I was going to bring up the tasty videos or I I think the entire genre of food TikTok, which is just like these fast cut, these, Mm -hmm. I know I'm too old, but TikTok (laughs) actually gives me anxiety and heart palpitations because the cuts move so quickly that it's like everything's an action film. I think everybody feels that way. Yeah. There's just an entire generation of people whose hearts are beating like hummingbirds because all they do is watch TikTok all day. Seriously. Also, it's TikTok. For me, TikTok. (laughs) Yeah. But I was going to say, for me, I think there's there's a distinction between when I'm watching something to be educated versus entertained. Totally. And those lines are blurry now. Like everything yeah. has to be so aesthetically pleasing and picture mm-hmm. perfect and the lighting and the filter. Mm-hmm. But for for me, my orientation is towards verbal. And so mm-hmm. I'm not a huge podcast listener because if I want the news, it's faster for me to read it than to listen to someone tell it to me. Does that make sense? Same. I I can always read faster than I can listen. So I hate when people don't caption their Instagram videos because I'm like, I have to listen to this whole thing. To the point. (laughs) I want to just be able to read it. Yeah. And the same thing for a lot of food blogs. I understand that there's some personal tie-in or you're sharing a heritage story. (laughs) But if it's more than a paragraph, I just want to know, how do I actually make this Mm-hmm. dish mm-hmm. and so it's the balance of like telling me step by step enough that I can duplicate it but not going so in depth that I'm bogged down by the details and I'm just trying to fast forward yes well and I think sometimes what happens well actually you go first then I'll say this thing well I was going to say for me like most YouTube videos that are walking me through step by step actually drive me crazy I just wish they'd show me the recipe Yes. And then if I had questions, I could turn that on in the background. Like that's my personal preference. Yeah. Tasty videos go too far in the other direction where mm-hmm. it's fun to watch, but I could never follow a recipe based on that. It's just not intuitive. Right. Right. And when I do truly want to be entertained, a YouTube channel that I really like is Binging with Babish. Oh, Cobb loves Binging with Babish. So he does, I mean, I'm sure he does all kinds of things, but he will do specialty items from tv shows or pop culture and then Mm -hmm. he'll make several versions of them yes the one that's coming to mind right now because i just had calzones over the weekend he does parks and rec ben wyatt calzones and he makes different versions of them i love that so he talks a little bit about like here's here's what i think ben wyatt would eat or here's where i've done it this way or i've made Mm -hmm. two variations but he's not really trying to teach you how to cook he's just exploring you know, yes. the influence of pop culture on food. And he's making a video to show you how to do that. And if you want to find more, you can navigate and find your own recipe. Yes. He did this whole series on sandwiches that was yes. like, I'm trying to remember what it was, but I think it was like sandwiches that different movie characters would eat or from a TV show or something. Anyway, 
that was really fun. And Cobb made a lot of them and they were amazing. Yeah. And like that creative aspect, I find very entertaining. Mm-hmm. But if I'm like, what am I going to cook for dinner? I'm not going to be like, let's see what Babish is up to. Right. Let's see right. what the characters in Emily in Paris would eat for breakfast. Like, no, I'm going to watch that in my downtime. When I want to be educated, I'm going to go to the blogs that I know and trust, you know? Yes. Yes. Well, I was going to say, I think what happens a lot of times is you have somebody who is sharing their stories and recipes that go along with that. And then as they gain popularity, people just want the recipes. Yeah. And so they have to find a way to kind of reorganize their work so people don't have to be like, I don't care about what happened when your college roommate took you to Texas for the summer and you had this chicory and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, just give it to me straight. But I do think it's really fun. Like, we have a family cookbook and all of our aunts and other people in our family submitted recipes. And it is really fun to read the stories. Like, remember when I made this and exploded on the stove and splashed on the ceiling? Like, so I do think recipes are powerful in that way and in connecting us with where they come from, you know? Right. Um, I feel like there was something else that I wanted to say about that. Oh, I just wanted to mention a brand that I love that is, I think, doing a really good job of redefining the aesthetics of food. It's called Misfit Markets. You've probably heard of them or seen ads for them. They basically take the produce that grocery stores and restaurants reject because it's not pretty enough and they sell it direct to consumer at wholesale prices. So I think I have seen that. It's like the carrots that look like they're doing the can-can. Yes. And they put like little eyes on the peppers and stuff. Anyway, I just think it's brilliant. A, because who doesn't want to waste less food and save money? And I still think like they're actually doing a good job of taking ugly things and making them visually pleasing. Right. And I just, I I love that. There's a name for the human instinct to make everything look like a face. Paradoilia. I did an Instagram post about this. Yes. Yes. That's what it is. Yeah. And I really feel like, you know, I have synesthesia, which we're going to talk about later, but I really feel like my pareidolia sense is super strong. I can turn anything into anything. Interesting. But it's like, it's just part of the way that we're wired. Yeah. My daughter's is not super strong, but if she sees a face, she like clings to it. Mm-hmm. Like her favorite thing to carry around is the little pamphlet from the inside of the Gilmore Girls season one because <laughs> it has two faces on it. Yes. With like all of the pop culture references. She's like, I will carry this around. I love that. Yeah. Our pediatrician always draws little faces on the tongue depressors. And those mm-hmm. are some of my kids' very favorite toys. It's very cute. I, I believe that. I believe it helps. Okay. So I have a bunch of like branding faux pas that seem to happen with food. Should we jump to that? I think you should do those. And then I have one final question for you. Okay, good. Okay. So there, I literally, I have to keep a list in my phone because for some reason, food brands, meaning like restaurants, grocery stores, packaging, all of these things, they seem to make these specific mistakes over and over and over again that you don't see with other industries. So I'm just going to, mm-hmm. I'm going to explain these and you'll be like, yep, I've seen that. Yep. I've seen that because they're all over Here's the place. Rebecca's free advice. So listen closely. <laughs> this is just like my brain. Like I walk around and I'm like, hey, did they do that? Like they probably paid so much money to do that and it looks terrible. Okay. Number one, the knife and fork. 
if I have to see one more restaurant with a knife and fork, they're often like crossed or they're on either side of something or they're like top and bottom knife and fork. Like it's a, it's so overused and B, I don't think it's a great icon. I think it doesn't work okay. super well from far away. So like if it's a restaurant and you see it from Does it far read away. Does it it's violent to you to have a knife? Kind of. Okay. I will say, side note, son of a butcher, that burger slider place I was mentioning, their branding is basically, oh, what is the name for it? It's those specific like cartoon characters with like, not anime, but they have like big eyes kind of retro style. It's that, but like with massive bloody butcher knives. and it's actually so like offbeat and quirky I love it so much and everything is just white and red that's it and even the handles on their restaurant are just two butcher knives that look like they're just like stuck in the doors that you grab and pull out oh I like that it's just really fun it's like they just they found a narrative and a motif that works and they're going hard with it and I think that's what you have to do so if you're gonna do a knife like if you're gonna do a knife yeah go with the knife right but like just this generic like little fork and knife icon from far away, it just looks like a cross. And you're like, are you the Jolly Roger? Like what's going on? Yeah. Or it looks like these awkward thick lines. Like it just, it does not work. I think unless you, you feel have that a way about really good reason. So it's interesting because spoons are just much less used because they're not as recognizable of a shape. Mm-hmm. So again, I would still be careful with it. I also think like, it's okay if you want to use a fork and a knife. I mean, if it looks good, if you have a good reason for it for a restaurant, but I often see them for like salads and I'm like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not the product that you're selling. The product that you're selling is the actual food, not the utensils. Yeah. So I think there's some like backwardsness with that. The next thing that I see all the time that I cannot stand. And for some reason, like I said, I don't know why this pops up all the time in food branding. Dead fish. (laughs) why is everybody using an ugly dead fish sorry if this is too loud i'm pounding the table that's how passionate i am about the dead fish but again like i can think of one sushi restaurant off the top of my head that uses like a cheeky sorry a funny dead fish for their logo and it works so well for them but everybody else, I'm just like, this isn't doing anything for you. And I think yeah, you have to be true. I think you have to be really careful using animals in branding for food. Like because we all know that food animals are dead, but we don't like to think about it like that. Right. Like it's actually really interesting to me that Chick-fil-A has the chicken in their logo, but also that they use cows in their advertising. I think it's it's much more appealing for us to be like oh, look at those funny cows. I'm eating something else. Ha ha ha. Right. Right. Like, I think it's totally working for them. But if I think about it, I'm like, that's super weird. And like, I think that campaign is, is really brilliant because it's so unexpected. But I'm like, that is not something that I would recommend without seriously like testing it out first. Yeah. Occasionally. Go ahead. I was just going to say, we as humans are so uncomfortable with the fact that we kill animals to eat them, that we've invented a separate word for them once they're dead. Yes. Like we don't say we eat pig. We're like, we're eating pork, ham, yes. bacon. Yes. We've like de- de-livened it up so that I know. we don't have to think about it. We're <laughs> eating veal. Yeah. 
With fish, not as much, though. We're like, oh, this is a scallop. What are you eating? Right. Dead scallop. Yeah, I'm having shrimp. I'm having crab. (laughs) We were at this um, market on Saturday, and they had live crawfish. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We went to look at them. Kyle was like, should we boil some crawfish? And I was like, most of these are already dead. It was like so (laughs) gross. Yeah. I'm like, let's not get these today. So I think you have to be careful with that. You also have to be kind of careful. This is like a very niche specific thing, but using eyes in logos can be kind of dangerous because- The letter I or the eyeball? Like eyeballs, like eyes looking at you. I would definitely never do two eyes. If you're going to do like an animal or a shape or something that has an eye, I would do a profile with one eye. And the reason for that is not because it's creepy. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But this is like a human nature pareidolia thing. We are very drawn to faces. And so mm-hmm. it can distract or detract from the name of your brand if people are looking at the face. So that's why I think you want to, like, if I were going to do some food branding, I would go heavy on the type and do like some really cool typography. And only if I had a good reason or something really interesting, would I use some kind of visual icon. Okay. That's good to know. Okay. I have two more. Okay. Okay. Number three is leaves, which there's just too many leaves in branding as it is. And I think you have to work really hard to do a leaf icon of any kind without having people be like, oh, I've seen that on clip art before. Yeah. Like it really needs to be something custom. If you're going to do like, there's this really great I don't know, meat market, if that's what you call it, that just opened up near us called Wild Fork. And their branding is like black text, but the eye of wild is like a red, to me, almost looks like a wing or a feather Mm. or like a fish scale or something. It doesn't immediately look like a leaf, maybe because it's in red. But to me, it makes me think of like Alaska. Interesting. And I think that's working really well for them. And I like I spent a lot of time looking at the logo because Cobb was taking forever picking out some meat for Father's Day. And I was like, I think this is working because the colors are different. I think if it was just black with a little green leaf, it wouldn't be distinct enough. Yeah, it would read as generic to you. Right. So I think that the color made it work. So I think like with any of these rules, it's like, of course, you can use a fish in your logo, but work with a designer who knows how to make that unique. And don't just plug it in there because you think it looks good. Like, oh, you know what would look really good? If we had the name of our restaurant with a knife on the left and a fork on the right. Like, eh, no. Knife, fork, leaf in the middle. Yes, like straight to jail. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, my last food faux pas, and this is actually more general for a lot of brands, but food or objects as letters. If you watched um, my Instagram stories a little while ago, I did this breakdown of the brand Salad to Go. (laughs) You were really mean to Salad to Go. (laughs) Well, I just think, first of all, I have a hard time believing that like a Salad to Go place is actually going to have great salads. No offense. But their branding is making me think that because their branding does not look very smart or sophisticated. Mm -hmm. It's like orange type in thick all caps letters and then the l is like a fork with a little lettuce sprig coming off of it but the fork is kind of so it reads like syed to go yes yes it literally reads as syed to go and it drives me crazy and like i think the orange could be a really like smart interesting choice but 
the design of it doesn't make me think of like fresh green salad. It makes me think of like fast food. Like it kind of looks like Popeye's to me. And if you're selling salad, you don't want to look like Popeye's. Yeah, probably not. Nope. The other brand that does this, this is not a food brand, but it's called, I don't, it might be like a local one to us, but it's called Home Pharmacy. And the O of home is a heart, which is just overdone. But also one of the A's in pharmacy is the same heart. (laughs) And so I'm like, it's either Hame Pharmacy or Home Pharmacy. (laughs) You can't have a heart represent an O and an A. They are different letters. Don't you think this just came from like, there was one big agency back when typography was just starting and they were like, you know, it would be great. Mm-hmm. If one of the letters was also an object, like no one's ever done this before. And then suddenly yes. everybody did it. Yes. It's well, like and- how there's a whole a generation of restaurants that have lowercase names, like yes. their Instagram handles. Because it used to be like, we're new and modern. We don't use capital letters. We're democratic. Yes, exactly. Like we're for the every man. Like we're not making judgment on who can eat here, even though you can tell by our designs that our food is probably really expensive. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think to me, it just says like somebody who didn't really know what they were doing, but there's always, always a way out. And that is to rebrand. Yes. (laughs) So those are my food faux pas. Those are, those are the most most common things that I see specific to food branding, especially like packaging. Yeah, I can see that. So my last question was just like, what is your dream client if you were to rebrand any food food critic food blogger restaurant type of restaurant food product okay so i i would love 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 to do a food restaurant there's a lot of i didn't talk as much about like food packaging like in the grocery store but Mm -hmm. maybe our next episode because i have a lot of opinions about that i would love to work with a restaurant there's kind of two types of restaurants that I would love to work with. I'll try to make this quick. One would be like the hole in the wall restaurant that has amazing food, but a non-existent or really crappy brand. And I don't want to be offensive, but there's a restaurant in Dallas that we go to probably once a week that fits this description. And I love their food so much. They have, I'm not going to tell you the name actually, but they have an amazing Reuben sandwich. And I'm just like, oh, if I could just redesign your restaurant, like this could change everything for you. And for me, it's not like you might eat there twice a week. I might eat there twice a week. I told um, I told the owner, I was like, yeah, I forgot you guys were closed on Monday and I had to go to the grocery store and make my own Reuben. And he gave me his phone number so that next time I can just call him. Oh, my God. Is that not the best? Oh, that's so nice. It's been my dream my whole life to go somewhere where they say the usual and literally every time I walk in, he goes the usual. And I'm like, yes, I love you. Yes. <laughs> and I was going to say like my goal, like if I were to rebrand that restaurant, I would not turn them into this super bougie, low lights, like charge $25 for a Reuben sandwich restaurant. I would just take what they have and say, hey, this is like made fresh, hot sandwiches, cold beverages, local burger place and just like run with that. Yeah. I think this is like getting into a different topic, but I think sometimes people worry that branding is about making them something that they're not. 
Like, oh, you're going to make me Mm. look different than how I really am. And I really feel like branding is actually showing people who you really are. It's like taking, like taking the essence of you and saying, okay, how can we turn this into a brand? And so in that way, I think it's really like personal and really powerful. And that's why I do not, this is a whole side tangent, but a lot of people are like, your brand is not about you. Your brand is only about your target audience, your ideal clients. And I'm like, no, your brand is absolutely about you because my ideal clients want their brand to be the most authentic representation of them. And I feel like that's what I'm right. good at. The other kind of restaurant that I would love to do is like a straight up bougie restaurant where we could do like the most minimal menu where people like barely even know what they're ordering, but they know it's going to be a hundred dollars. <laughs> and like they serve like a bacon sampler on like a log that was chopped earlier that day. Like that would be so, so fun. Ooh, I like that. I would do like all black and white, no color, very editorial, super simple fonts. And I wouldn't do like, I wouldn't do any pictures on the menu or anything like that. And it would be like this oversized, like super tall menu. Anyway, I think that would be super fun. It's not super bougie, but there's a restaurant in downtown Vegas called Carson Kitchen. Mm. And it's like, it's small plates, but everything okay. is very, very good. Yeah. But they, the times that I have been there, this could be a me thing, but I've just, it's been very bacon heavy. Mm. So they have a bacon jam appetizer that is truly incredible. I And then they also do their Brussels with bacon. Mm-hmm. They do burnt hot dog ends as one Ooh. of their things, and it's very good. Anyway, interesting. Yeah, so they should and their, they should their menus make bacon come on their thing. Little tiny clipboards. That's so cute. I love I love the clipboards. Oh, yeah. I love that. See, and like as I'm thinking more about the first restaurant, I'm like, there's no menus, right? Like I would almost the image that's coming to mind is doing like handwriting because this mm. is like family restaurant owned by the same three guys they come there every day they like have it crossed out on the sign they're not open on mondays (laughs) and so i would like lean into that a little bit more yeah you know and not be like a home style cooking kind of vibe but like a right like i'm the chef kind of vibe and this is just right this is just good food plain and simple you know i like that and i just oh it just pains me when I go in there because I also feel like this is a separate thing, but I also feel like the actual interior of the restaurant, like if I could get my hands on that, I'm like, I would repaint. I would get like, <laughs> like I do some kind of like nostalgic um, photos, you know, maybe of like classic musicians or something that feels a little bit more like somebody's personal collection. Yes. And have that like a big gallery wall up there. Anyway, there's just so many fun things that I could do if they would just let me. If they only knew that I wanted to redesign their whole restaurant. Well, maybe ask them if you can do a barter and you're like, listen, I have 100 free sandwiches. (laughs) I have literally thought about being like, hey, I will like redesign all your signage. If you will let me and my family eat here for free. (laughs) (laughs) I love it that much. It's worth a shot. You never know. Abby, how do you think copyright of recipes or food blogs works in regards to creating your own work versus using somebody else's recipe? Like, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So for our uh, not legal advice segment, I actually yes. do have some thoughts about this. And 
my thoughts are primarily about recipes specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, if we want to talk about, there's a much bigger issue about how food is created and the collaborative process and who gets credit for things. Mm-hmm. And I would love to talk about that. If you're curious, feel free to reach out to me or we can do a whole separate episode on it. But I think we'll start just with some issues about recipes specifically. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of historical debate on whether or not recipes are copyrightable. This wouldn't apply to everybody, right? If, if what you are selling is the finished product food on a plate or in a mm-hmm. package, mm-hmm. you don't really have to worry about this. You just have to worry about food labeling, which yeah. that's not my area of expertise. Yeah, that's a whole but other if you thing. Are, if you are marketing and selling recipes for food, it's unclear for a lot of time. Things that were considered purely functional, like mm-hmm. dress patterns, clothing, recipes, mm-hmm. or even like a planner that is some sort of formula. Yeah. Kind of a fill in the box, follow these instructions. There's right. even, there's controversy right now about board game instructions and whether or not they are copyrightable. Oh, interesting. So y- this is like a gray area of law. Mm-hmm. So that's something to keep in mind, particularly if you're putting all your stuff out there on the internet for free, it's not unimaginable that somebody's going to copy what you have. Oh, yeah. Right. So the question is, like, what is it that you actually can own and protect? Yeah. And because it is different for food, because it is something that historically maybe hasn't been protected under copyright, the other thing to keep in mind is that, A, copyright doesn't protect the idea. So Mm -hmm. the idea of a flourless chocolate cake is not something, no matter, even if you were the first person in the world to think of such a thing, and you are such a visionary. Mm Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter. The only thing that copyright protects is the actual expression. Interesting. I did not know that distinction. I I actually really like that. Yeah. So your expression of here's the exact measurements and here's the instructions of how you cream the butter and the sugar together mm-hmm. and what kind of flour you use. I mean, you're not using flour, but like right. how you put the eggs in and you're tempering them. Those specific instructions are copyrightable. But if someone maybe even cuts it in half, Right. And it's very similar, but the instructions are expressed in a different lingo. It's not going to be very clear cut that they have copied you. Interesting. Okay. I actually kind of love that because I feel like it takes the pressure off of having the most amazing original idea. Like yes. it's it's really not yep. the idea that matters so much. It's your expression. I'm I'm literally going to turn that into an Instagram post. Right. Like how many, how many people have written a love poem? Right. That right. I love you so much. I would die for you. That's not an original idea, but your expression of it in right. a sonnet or a villanelle or, you know, a free verse poem. Right. That's, that's specifically what's protectable. And the other thing you have to think about is, so copyright is about, you know, it's this balance. One of my professors always said, it's the island of monopoly versus the sea of permission. Okay. Explain so that a little bit more. Copyright really isn't about if you come up with a good idea, we're going to compensate you for it forever. Right. Copyright is like, you've put in some work. We appreciate that. But we also recognize that other people should be able to use your ideas and build off of them and spin off better ideas. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So that's why that's why we have fair use, which any creator always needs to think about. Mm-hmm. But it also shout out to Edward Gardier, whose poster is in fair use, which we used for our podcast artwork. Yeah, seriously. I mean, we're grateful for that, right? And yeah. we created something new out of it. All the work, but like created something new. Yeah. Based on an existing work. And for something 
like a recipe or if you're designing a planner Mm -hmm. or, you know, making a pattern, something that's going to be functional in that sense, we recognize that people need to be able to make your recipe without infringing your copyright. Right. Right. Everybody who made a flourless chocolate cake had to pay royalties to whoever invented it. Right. You're actually discouraging them from using yeah. the idea instead of like encouraging them to build off of it. Yeah. I actually love that it's like kind of this beautiful social contract of like, we want you to yeah. have ideas and we want to respect your ideas. And the way that we do that is by using them and sharing them and taking them and making something new out of them. Like that's cool. Right. And can yeah, so, so easily be abused. So easily be abused. But I think also to tie it all back together, mm-hmm. when you do have an idea, yeah. first of all, you need to make sure that the way you're expressing that idea is on brand. So not mm-hmm. just that like the food I have come up with is according to my culture that's in the genre of food that I cook and it you know matches my identity, but the way I'm instructing other people to make that food or the way I'm putting it on the mm-hmm. menu mm-hmm. matches that vibe and that aesthetic. Yes. And then- Also knowing that if you have enough brand recognition, people Mm -hmm. will still come to you and will still trust you to provide them with actual food or recipes or ideas or inspiration, regardless of whether or not you are the only source. So you have to trust that if I'm branded well enough, I don't have to cling so tightly to my ideas and be scared to share them, that I can afford to let it go and let people make their own variations or experiment or even- thousand percent. You know, this recipe is going to be on Pinterest. People are going to find it elsewhere. People are Mm -hmm. going to modify it. Mm -hmm. But that branding is something that will help you, you know, derive value from that and also get more of an audience. Right. I don't know if you follow or have read any of Leo Babuda's writings. I don't think so. He has like an OG blog with probably thousands of articles called Zen Habits. Anyway. We should do a whole episode about this because it's so fascinating, but he has what he calls uncopyright, which is basically he says, like, I release Mm. my body of work to be used. Like, you can take it, you can attribute it to yourself, you can sell it in your own ebook. Like, I, this is not mine, basically. And I thought a lot about that because I think that his writing style, like his expression, to use that word, is so unique to him that even if somebody else did take it, it wouldn't work because it ties so, or what am I trying to say? Because it's so recognizable as his brand. And so it's like extra powerful in that way that even though he has said like, take it, use it, I I give it all up. People don't. And I, I think that's, that is something to aspire to, right? To be yes. so innovative and so unique that even if people steal your stuff, they'll know who it really belongs right. to. Right. There's a, I can't remember who said it, but a poet that I really liked said, you don't need to worry about having an original idea. Mm -hmm. If you really have a truly unique idea, you won't have to beg people to accept it. You'll have to shove it down their throats. Yes. So So true. I'm reading this book right now called um, Steal Like an Artist. And yeah, I've seen that. Which it's based on a TED talk. Anyway, it's kind of snippety. It's like short essays. Anyway, but there's a quote from Picasso where he says like, bad artists copy, great artists steal. And how like we're all like we're all stealing from each other and we're all taking things and creating new things. And that's the way that it's supposed to work. And right. what you said about, 
I can't remember, but it made me think of one of my first design mentors. I was creating ads. This was back when I worked at SEO marketing agency, who I will not aim. Uh, yes. I'm not going to give them any advertising, but I was like turning yeah, out tons of free. designs, right? So I'm like making tons of stuff. Yeah. And one of my mentors was saying like, how do I know that this design belongs to this brand? And I said like, well, it has their logo on it. This sounds so obvious yeah. now. And she was like, okay, but if you take the logo off, how do I know that it belongs to this brand? Like there's nothing about it visually that matches with the rest of this brand's vision, mission, purpose, or visual identity. And that like really changed the way that I design things where like I create something and the logo is the last thing I put on there because really it's like, that's unnecessary at this point. Like it's just a nice to have when your branding is solid. It doesn't need a logo to be recognized. That's very true. Well, I think we have hit our one hour mark. Awesome. I have loved this discussion. I wasn't even thinking about all of the copyright implications of food, but that is fascinating to me. So thank you so much for joining us, everybody. Please subscribe and leave us a review and we will talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Aesthetically Speaking. If you want to support the podcast, please leave us a nice review or connect with us on Instagram at Rebecca Peterson Studio. 